0: we were developing a strategic plan, and there's so much regulation around telehealth, both at the state level and at the federal level. It's it's not as easy as it seems. And we thought, well, we can extend telehealth to all of our ambulatory sites in 48 months. That was kind of our trajectory just seven weeks ago. (laughs) Today, today, literally, we have extended telehealth to all of our ambulatory sites.
1: That was Nancy Howell President and CEO, Carillion Clinic. Nancy spoke about how the reduction of state and federal regulations in response to the COVID-19 pandemic allowed Carillion Clinic to broadly introduce telemedicine years before they thought possible. I'm Gary Bisbee, and this is Fireside Chat. Nancy began her healthcare career as a nurse, and she's been chairman of the American Hospital Association Board of Directors. Her background ideally positions her to understand the politics, and health policy considerations of the COVID-19 outbreak as well as the needs of caregivers, patients and the community. The conversation with Nancy includes her thoughts about operating margins for nonprofit health systems, COVID-19 updates to the community through live streaming news conferences and how she communicates with the board of directors during the crisis. Let's welcome Nancy Hallagy to the show. Good afternoon, Nancy, and welcome to the Fireside Chat.
0: Good afternoon to you, Gary. It's good to hear from you.
1: We were just chuckling a bit. Two and a half years ago, we were in your office with Don and interviewed you on video at that point. And boy, how things have changed since then.
0: Well, a lot of things have changed since then, but I would say the world's completely different as of about four weeks ago. So. How fast uh, life comes at you sometimes.
1: Well, that's for sure. Well said. Each region is different. How has the surge affected the Roanoke area and the Caribbean clinic population?
0: We saw our first case. Well, let me just go back and say each region is different. Even in Virginia, most every part of Virginia had one or two cases before southwest Virginia had any cases or West Virginia had any cases, and so we were laughing a little bit that these Appalachian Mountains here may have been protective. Turns out that's not true, but it was good while it lasted. (laughs) But we had our first case about uh, 12 days ago, and we now have five cases. We're seeing some escalation of the number of cases. Only two are hospitalized at the moment, and the rest are self-isolating at home.
1: Well, it'd be great if it doesn't go beyond that. Let's hope that's the case. Testing has been a problem nationally. How has testing worked for you? Has there been a shortage of testing kits?
0: We've been very judicious with testing to protect the number of testing kits that we've Had and only testing those that meet certain criteria, and they're the usual criteria. Do you know, have you been out of the country? Do you have a cough? Do you have fever? We've been able to stay up to date with that. We have a testing center, so we've tried to funnel all the cases, physician referrals to the one testing center. And a separate problem, which was a pretty big problem, was that testing was taking somewhere between four and seven days, which meant that anyone who had been in contact with that person had to self-isolate for 14 days. And that has improved. And the Virginia Department of Health, Quest, others, have improved their rapidity with which they do the test. Uh, But I ache for having a test that we can do point of service or get turnaround time in hours versus days.
1: Yeah, that would be great. And I see the FDA just last Friday did approve a point-of-care test. I don't know anything about how available it will be or when, but at least they're moving in that direction. Yeah,
0: I was on a phone call with CMS earlier today, and that was talked about, the intent is for that to be inpatient only. I also understand the FDA has approved a nasal foam swab that theoretically at least can be self-administered. So I'm anxious to learn more about the variety of ways we can test because the quicker we can test and get results back, I think the better off we're going to be.
1: Yeah, for sure. How about ICU beds and your ventilator supply?
0: The medical center here is a large 725 bed medical center and we have about 150 ICU beds. We are being careful. We have eliminated now about a week ago, elective procedures or non-essential procedures and surgeries, which is helping. And we've identified a variety of sources for what we hope we won't need, but for surge capacity. And so far, we feel like that we can handle this. We also have the availability of 2 tents. And the state here has been good, I think, to help identify where needs are and send supplies where those needs are. So far in this state, we're all in constant communication, and I think we're doing all right. Of course, we we believe this will continue now for some weeks to come. And so if we talk again next week or the week after, I might tell you something differently. (laughs) might
1: might be completely different. Well, we'll come back to COVID-19 later, but why don't we ask you to describe the Carilion Clinic?
0: Carilion is an integrated delivery system. We're organized around our physician group. We employ about 1,000 physicians, and we have another 0,000 providers in private practice We have seven hospitals, including two critical access hospitals, one micro-hospital, a children's hospital embedded in our academic medical center, which, as I mentioned, is the second largest or third largest, depending on how you count it, in Virginia. We have a partnership with Virginia Tech and have an allopathic medical school and research institute. So we're a, a, a significant Player with the largest employer west of Richmond, Virginia, for the state of Virginia, and we provide services for about a third of Virginia, as well as some into West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, and North Carolina.
1: Were you from that area to begin with?
0: <laughs> I was actually. Um, I was born here in Roanoke, and you know, I, I I teasingly say sometimes I do get out of town but uh, but I <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well as chairman of the AHA not long ago you got out of town quite a bit, I'm sure.
0: Yes, I, I'm not sure I know what to do with myself with this imposed um travel ban. We've we've certainly imposed that here. I have for our employees, but um you know, for the last three years with the Amer well the last six years, but the last three years as an officer with the American Hospital Association, which was my great honor to do I was traveling somewhere around the nation as well as around the world with the AHA and it was just an incredible experience that uh, I will never forget.
1: Well, you did a terrific job. Congratulations. Well, back to, so- to say that. Back to social distancing. So what is the policy at Crillon Clinic now?
0: We implemented a travel ban, so no international or national travel, work-related travel Also, because we are, our hospitals cover a geography that's from end to end about a four hour drive. We've curtailed travel between and among our facilities to the extent possible. We've tried very hard to only have meetings that are by phone or by computer. We do have some in person meetings, but we practice social distancing there. We've changed our cafeterias and so on so that there's space uh, between and among the tables and, and people. We've done a lot to provide safety for our employees and I think that we think that that's working. I think our staff as much as anything are getting tired and anxious. They're working hard. That said as you may have heard from others, our volumes are down so some of that is self-imposed because we have restricted Uh, non-essential procedures and surgeries, and some of it we find that the public has just responded with staying at home. And so uh, fewer visits to our ambulatory sites, fewer visits to our emergency departments. The social isolation in our region is working. The financial consequences to our organization, I think, will have a lasting impact, and it's very worrisome.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point when you say lasting impact. So your point is this is not just three-month, six-month, 12-month issue, but this is going to affect Carilion Clinic for some time in the future.
0: Well, I hope I hope that's wrong, and I hope that the economy comes roaring back here this summer. And I was glad to see that the stock market's up a bit today. But, you know, like most hospitals, we don't have a huge margin. We, we're we think a 35 to 5% operating margin is appropriate for a not-for-profit, and, and we work hard to stay within that parameter. But I, I think this year is going to be pretty challenging financially.
1: Yeah, for sure, and we're hearing that from from all hospitals or all health systems around the country. Well, you're from the area, so you have a good feel for how the public is looking at this. Do you sense that there's any impatience there and wanting to get back to it or is everybody pretty much saying we're going to do what it takes here
0: i would say there's both sides of the coin there are those that and maybe it's a three-sided coin (laughs) such a thing exists there are those that think what have we done is we have we overdone is this really necessary there are those that have said, is there going to be a light at the end of the tunnel and let's let's move on? And, and certainly there are those who say, either with anxiety or with determination, we'll stay at home and we'll do what's right. It's quiet around everywhere. It's very quiet. You know, all businesses are closed, of course. Coming to work, I live about oh about a 30-minute drive from my office, and driving down Interstate 81 with if anybody's been on Interstate 81, it's a very crowded interstate, and I can get here in half the time, it feels like. There's just, you know, you just don't pass any traffic. So it's changed a lot. You know, we the governor closed all schools. The universities and colleges around have all closed, and that's created another burden amongst our workers who now have children at home and no place for them to go to be cared for. So it's, it just seems like one unexpected turn after another.
1: Well, I know that safety of your employees and staff is top-notch for you. How have the physicians and nurses, the primary caregivers, how how are they handling this?
0: I think they're doing an incredible job and really remarkable. Uh, you know, they're they're going to be so many people to thank once this we move on. There's so many heroes. The good news is we're staying about two weeks ahead with PPE, and we've been surprised at the number of places who have called to donate equipment. For instance, Norfolk Southern just showed up with a truckload of N95 masks. There's lots of places, universities and um colleges who've shown up with with PPE donating things looking hard so that's been that's been terrific as well as of course our various services and the state has released equipment as well but more than that the communities come together and finding ways to thank our healthcare workers a few examples there's a bridge across the river walking in from the garage to the main hospital and somebody had made a big chalk art, just thank you um, to our nurse doctors and nurses. and it's beautiful. People are delivering meals. People are offering to babysit, it, to take care of, of the dogs and cats at home. So the community is really coming together. And one of the things that we worked with the churches, so Carillion our name. It's a derivative of Carillon. And uh, which, of course, are bells um, working together in harmony. And so every morning at 7 o'clock now, the churches peel bells to thank the healthcare workers in our region. Oh, that's nice. really, I yeah, know, it's really that, quite lovely.
1: That's unique as well. I'm, I'm sorry to go here, but but could you define PPE for those that aren't familiar with it? Oh, pers- uh,
0: personal protective equipment. <laughs> okay. Which includes gowns and gloves and masks.
1: We, uh, of course, are used to the acronyms, those of us that work in healthcare. So, for those that aren't, so how's the morale of the physician group and your other caregivers and, and other employees?
0: I would say 90% this is what we do we take care of people who are sick, we take care of our communities, we live our mission, which is to improve the health of those we, that we serve and that's an honor. That's part of who we are. There are those, of course, who are concerned about their own safety or the safety of their families, who are tired or or frustrated, but but they're really a small minority.
1: We've had a national emergency declared. There's Congress is talking about a $2 trillion assistance package. Do you have any expectation that all these dollars are going to be helpful to your community? Is it actually going to help the economy or help healthcare? That's
0: a really good question. At least the first couple of bills were targeted at small business, and we have a lot of small businesses here, so I uh, hope that will be helpful. Until this last bill, nothing much was done to economically support hospitals and we're looking for some potential relief for what we know is going to be a difficult financial consideration going forward. So we'll see. You know, I think that at least the stock market was up a bit today on the hope that the Senate and the House would agree and, and pass this last bill. I think the economic stimulus is going to be necessary. I guess in some ways those of us in healthcare are so in the middle of this that our day-to-day concern is taking care of our patients, taking care of our staff, and helping our community get over this.
1: Right, and you mentioned there's a couple of critical access hospitals in your portfolio of hospitals, and I would think that we'd be looking for some economic support, particularly for that group of hospitals.
0: Yeah, and we're a recent Medicaid expansion state, thankfully, but one of the ways that we got a Medicaid expansion approved is a provider assessment on all hospitals, so we are asking for that to be relieved from the state need, and as a matter of fact, just today sent a letter to the governor from all of the hospitals in Virginia saying, if you can eliminate the provider assessment, that'll be one way that we can find some solutions.
1: Well, in terms of the states, we've already talked about the regional variation in this disease. How much support can a state provide compared, let's say, to the federal government?
0: I think both are possible in in the state, being able to support us with, uh, as I mentioned, the provider assessment. I think the federal government, there's a variety of things that we think they can do and I think that are in the bill. I have to say I've been very pleased with CMS and HHS and FDA, all of whom have commonly have a call with those of us who want to participate, have been listening, have been trying to provide any number of things that they can do, releasing regulation. And one of the most important has been telehealth. So, you know, Gary, we were developing a strategic plan, and there's so much regulation around telehealth. Both at the state level and at the federal level, it's it's not as easy as it seems. And we thought, well, we can extend Telehealth to all of our ambulatory sites in 48 months. That was kind of our trajectory just seven weeks ago. <laughs> today, today, literally, we have extended Telehealth to all of our ambulatory sites. People have worked tirelessly internally. But this, both the state and, and CMS have relaxed regulations and have made it possible for us to do something we didn't think we'd be able to do for quite a long time. What I hope is that that will continue <laughs> after, after this crisis is over because we now know we can deliver care in a way that's different and that saves money and that our providers and our patients uh, feel good about. Even in the emergency departments, you know, you, we can use telehealth. And imagine the follow-up you can do with telehealth. Imagine if you can screen a patient before they even come in and tell them which room to go to. I mean, there's so much we can do technologically. So I'm uh, I'm really buoyed by this turn of events. If, if there's a silver lining to this crisis, it's being able to do some important care delivery in new and different ways.
1: It's good for patients, good for the finances of the hospitals. And as you mentioned, there's some long-term consequences probably to both. This would be terrific if we could keep this going. I'm sure there will be a lot of comments to HHS and CMS about that.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit like you can't open up the window now and expect us to put the genie back in the bottle, right?
1: That's exactly right. Well, and I noticed that there have been some Medicaid waivers passed, so-called Section 1135 waivers, and Virginia was granted a waiver, so that's apparently going to help with prior authorization and some of these other regulatory hurdles, which seems like it'll clearly be good for patients and providers and might be good financially as well over time.
0: I hope you're right. I think anything we can do to reduce the friction that occurs in healthcare and do things more expeditiously less expensively and improve healthcare, then, you know, let's use any opportunity we can to make that happen and make it stick.
1: So you've basically postponed all elective surgeries, is that it, or most elective surgeries?
0: Well, we're calling them non-essential procedures and, and surgeries, and we're asking the chairs of each of our departments, so we've nine chairs, the so large departments. To make a decision, and we have a tiering of services, recommended services, and whether it's a do now, whether it's wait, the the reason we did that as much as anything is to protect our supply of PPE, personal protective equipment.
1: You know, there's second and third order effects will, of course, occur in one of them you There's been a lot of talk about cutting down on hospital beds, and yet this brings into focus the important role that hospitals and provider organizations play as part of the domestic infrastructure, clearly a vital national asset. Do you think that we'll be able to make that case and bring more attention to bear on the importance of our provider institutions?
0: I do. If I turn back the clock and All the time uh, with the American Hospital Association, when and for the last couple of years there's been this seemingly growing notion that hospitals were getting too big, we had too many beds. You heard the term an admission is a fallacy or a failure of the hospital, of the healthcare system. Personally, at least for our region, I've I've felt like we're always going to need hospital beds. We run very full beds, and I think this is a wake up call to America that the one stability that you've got, the ones who are always there are your your frontline workers, whether they're EMS providers or physicians or nurses, a technologist. And a shout out right now to environmental services. So the staff that clean are our first line of defense, aren't they? So I, I think that we're gonna see a change in the heart of politicians in particular that Hospitals are needed and necessary, and we're the ones who are there in any crisis.
1: Well, you made the point earlier, great quote. You said, this is what we do, and that's pretty much encapsulates this for our health workers. Could we turn for a moment to your board of directors and the governance process? So what questions does your board have? How frequently are you communicating with your board?
0: We are doing a couple things. We're having a telephonic meeting weekly with our board and we run through where we are, what we're doing, how our employees are doing, any particular issues or concerns. Because it's a telephonic meeting it really isn't a protected meeting per se, although the only invitees are our board members and we're going to continue to do that throughout the duration of this. And then we have a portal so we can post anything we like to the portal that is confidential. And Additionally, I pretty rarely send out emails, and the media has been actually quite helpful in asking us questions but not overwhelming us. So what we've done, we did our first one last week. We did a a full news conference and live-streamed it, and and most of the local media uh, live-streamed that. We're going to do that again this week. And what we've told the media is we'll continue to do that so they won't have to you know, keep asking for things. And we're live streaming it so that we only have a few people in the room at a time. The board's just been terrific, both curious and, and interested in wanting to know how they can be helpful, what information can we give them, what information do they need as they talk to their colleagues and and, and their support for us. So no real specific questions other than you know financially how, what are you what are you projecting what are your concerns how are the employees and do we have the equipment that you need you know is there anything that they can do to be supportive in general our board our boards for all of our hospitals and our fiduciary board as well have just been tremendously supportive and helpful
1: well this has been a terrific interview Nancy we really do appreciate your time and i know you're very busy there. Let's turn it back to you just for one question, which is what award has meant the most to you out of all the awards you've received?
0: <laughs> well, that's not fair. <laughs> I didn't I didn't
1: give you advance warning on that one, did I?
0: Uh, and um, you can
1: answer later if you don't want to answer now, that's okay.
0: Can I name three? Yes, you can. So one is the Uh, Every year, our organization gives quality award, the highest award we give in our our own organization. And several years ago, that was given to me, and that probably means as much as anything could possibly mean. The second is, and similar, (laughs) growing up, you always saw... The mayor gave the key to the city to somebody and was always in the paper. And I thought, that is so cool. Those are, that's really cool. About a year ago, to my surprise, I was speaking at something. The mayor gave me the key to the city. And I thought, no, that's, that's pretty cool. And then lastly, the Gail Warden Award for Leadership really touched me because it was from my peers. And uh, it meant a lot to me. Thank you for asking, but that's embarrassing. <laughs> well, I'm sorry,
1: but they're all three very nice awards. I love the key to the city story. And actually, Gail Warden hired me at the American Hospital Association when oh, I went there. Oh, my so, goodness. Yep. No kidding. So that's very wow, cool. Well,
0: that's a, that's a very good story. Thanks for what you're doing to get the word out. And hope that uh, we can all see each other in person soon. Look
1: forward to it. Thanks so much, Nancy. This episode of Fireside Chat is produced by Stratfire. Please subscribe to Fireside Chat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to rate and review Fireside Chat so we can continue to explore key issues with innovative and dynamic healthcare leaders. In addition to subscribing and rating, we have found that podcasts are known through word of mouth. We appreciate your spreading the word to friends or those who might be interested. Fireside Chat is brought to you from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., where we explore the intersection of healthcare, politics, financing, and delivery. For additional perspectives on health policy and leadership, read my weekly blog, Bisbee's Brief. For questions and suggestions about Fireside Chat, contact me through our website, firesidechatpodcast.com or gary at hmacademy.com. Thanks for listening.